Students for Fair Admissions, Inc., the President and Fellows of Harvard College, decided June 29, 2023. Justice Sotomayor, with whom Justice Kagan and Justice Jackson join. Dissenting. The Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment enshrines a guarantee of racial equality. The Court long ago concluded that this guarantee can be enforced through race-conscious means in a society that is not, and has never been, colorblind. In Brown v. Board of Education, 1954, the Court recognized the constitutional necessity of racially integrated schools in light of the harm inflicted by segregation and the importance of education to our democratic society. For 45 years, the court extended Brown's transformative legacy to the context of higher education, allowing colleges and universities to consider race in a limited way and for the limited purpose of promoting the important benefits of racial diversity. This limited use of race has helped equalize educational opportunities for all students of every race and background, and has improved racial diversity on college campuses. Although progress has been slow and imperfect, race-conscious college admissions policies have advanced the Constitution's guarantee of equality and have promoted Brown's vision of a nation with more inclusive schools. Today, this court stands in the way and rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress. It holds that race can no longer be used in a limited way in college admissions to achieve such critical benefits. In so holding, the court cements a superficial rule of colorblindness as a constitutional principle in an endemically segregated society where race has always mattered and continues to matter. The court subverts the constitutional guarantee of equal protection by further entrenching racial inequality in education, the very foundation of our democratic government and pluralistic society. Because the court's opinion is not grounded in law or fact and contravenes the vision of equality embodied in the 14th Amendment, I dissent. Part 1. Section A. Equal educational opportunity is a prerequisite to achieving racial equality in our nation. From its founding, The United States was a new experiment in a Republican form of government, where democratic participation and the capacity to engage in self-rule were vital. At the same time, American society was structured around the profitable institution that was slavery, which the original Constitution protected. The Constitution initially limited the power of Congress to restrict the slave trade, accorded southern states additional electoral power by counting three-fifths of their enslaved population in apportioning congressional seats, and gave enslavers the right to retrieve enslaved people who escaped to free states. 
because a foundational pillar of slavery was the racist notion that black people are a subordinate class with intellectual inferiority. Southern states sought to ensure slavery's longevity by prohibiting the education of black people, whether enslaved or free. Thus, from this nation's birth, the freedom to learn was neither colorblind nor equal. With time, and at the tremendous cost of the Civil War, abolition came. More than two centuries after the first African enslaved persons were forcibly brought to our shores, Congress adopted the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime. Like all great historical transformations, emancipation was a movement, not a single event, owed to any single individual institution or political party. The fight for equal educational opportunity, however, was a key driver. Literacy was an instrument of resistance and liberation. Education provided the means to write a path to freedom and to learn of abolitionist activities. It allowed enslaved black people to disturb the power relations between master and slave, which fused their desire for literacy with their desire for freedom. Put simply, the very feeling of inferiority which slavery forced upon black people fathered an intense desire to rise out of their condition by means of education. Black Americans thus insisted, in the words of Frederick Douglass, that in a country governed by the people, like ours, education of the youth of all classes is vital to its welfare, prosperity, and to its existence. Black people's yearning for freedom of thought and for a more perfect union with educational opportunity for all played a crucial role during the Reconstruction era. Yet emancipation marked the beginning, not the end of that era. Abolition alone could not repair centuries of racial subjugation. Following the 13th Amendment's ratification, the southern states replaced slavery with a system of laws which imposed upon black people onerous disabilities and burdens, and curtailed their rights in the pursuit of life, liberty, and property to such an extent that their freedom was of little value. Those so-called black codes discriminated against black people on the basis of race, regardless of whether they had been previously enslaved. Moreover, the criminal punishment exception in the 13th Amendment facilitated the creation of a new system of forced labor in the South. Southern states expanded their criminal laws, which in turn permitted involuntary servitude as a punishment for convicted black persons. States required, for example, that black people sign a labor contract to work for a white employer or face prosecution for vagrancy. State laws then forced black convicted persons to labor in plantations, mines, and industries in the South. 
This system of free forced labor provided tremendous benefits to Southern whites and was designed to intimidate, subjugate, and control newly emancipated black people. The 13th Amendment, without more, failed to equalize society. Congress thus went further and embarked on months of deliberation about additional Reconstruction laws. Those efforts included the appointment of a committee, the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, to inquire into the condition of the Confederate states. Among other things, the committee's report to Congress documented the deep-seated prejudice against emancipated black people in the southern states and the lack of a general disposition to place the colored race, constituting at least two-fifths of the population, upon terms even of civil equality. In light of its findings, the committee proposed amending the Constitution to secure the equality of rights, civil and political. Congress acted on that recommendation and adopted the 14th Amendment. Proponents of the amendment declared that one of its key goals was to protect the black man in his fundamental rights as a citizen with the same shield which it throws over the white man. That is, the amendment sought to secure to a race recently emancipated, a race that through many generations was held in slavery, all the civil rights that the superior race enjoy. To promote this goal, Congress enshrined a broad guarantee of equality in the Equal Protection Clause of the Amendment. That clause commands that no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Congress chose its words carefully, opting for expansive language that focused on equal protection and rejecting proposals that would have made the Constitution explicitly colorblind. This choice makes it clear that the 14th Amendment does not impose a blanket ban on race-conscious policies. Simultaneously with the passage of the 14th Amendment, Congress enacted a number of race-conscious laws to fulfill the amendment's promise of equality, leaving no doubt that the Equal Protection Clause permits consideration of race to achieve its goal. One such law was the Freedmen's Bureau Act, enacted in 1865 and then expanded in 1866, which established a federal agency to provide certain benefits to refugees and newly emancipated freedmen. For the Bureau, education was the foundation upon which all efforts to assist the freedmen rested. Consistent with that view, the Bureau provided essential funding for black education during Reconstruction. Black people were the targeted beneficiaries of the Bureau's programs, especially when it came to investments in education in the wake of the Civil War. Each year surrounding the passage of the 14th Amendment, the Bureau educated approximately 100,000 students, nearly all of them black and regardless of degree of past disadvantage. The Bureau also provided land and funding to establish some of our nation's historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs. 
1867, for example, the Bureau provided Howard University tens of thousands of dollars to buy property and construct its campus in our nation's capital. Howard University was designed to provide special opportunities for a higher education to the newly enfranchised of the South, but it was available to all black people, whatever may have been their previous condition. The Bureau also expended a total of $407,752.21 on black colleges and only $3,000 on white colleges from 1867 to 1870. Indeed, contemporaries understood that the Freedmen's Bureau Act benefited black people. Supporters defended the law by stressing its race-conscious approach. Opponents argued that the act created harmful racial classifications that favored black people and disfavored white Americans. President Andrew Johnson vetoed the bill on the basis that it provided benefits to a particular class of citizens. But Congress overrode his veto. Thus, rejecting those opponents' objections, the same Reconstruction Congress that passed the 14th Amendment eschewed the concept of colorblindness as sufficient to remedy inequality in education. Congress also debated and passed the Civil Rights Act of 1866 contemporaneously with the 14th Amendment. The goal of that act was to eradicate the black codes enacted by southern states following ratification of the 13th Amendment. Because the black codes focused on race, not just slavery-related status, the Civil Rights Act explicitly recognized that white citizens enjoyed certain rights that non-white citizens did not. Section 1 of the Act provided that all persons of every race and color shall have the same rights as those enjoyed by white citizens. Similarly, Section 2 established criminal penalties for subjecting racial minorities to different punishment by reason of color or race than is prescribed for the punishment of white persons. In other words, the Act was not colorblind. By using white citizens as a benchmark, the law classified by race and took account of the privileges enjoyed only by white people. As he did with the Freedmen's Bureau Act, President Johnson vetoed the Civil Rights Act in part because he viewed it as providing black citizens with special treatment. Again, Congress overrode his veto. In fact, Congress reenacted race-conscious language in the Civil Rights Act of 1870, two years after ratification of the 14th Amendment. Congress similarly appropriated federal dollars explicitly and solely for the benefit of racial minorities. For example, it appropriated money for the relief of destitute colored women and children without regard to prior enslavement. Several times during and after the passage of the 14th Amendment, Congress also made special appropriations and adopted special protections for the bounty and prize money owed to colored soldiers and sailors of the Union Army. In doing so, it rebuffed objections to these measures as class legislation applicable to colored people and not to the white people. 
This history makes it inconceivable that race-conscious college admissions are unconstitutional. Section B. The Reconstruction Era marked a transformational point in the history of American democracy. Its vision of equal opportunity leading to an equal society was short-lived, however, with the assistance of this court. In a series of decisions, the court sharply curtailed the substantive protections of the Reconstruction Amendments and the Civil Rights Acts. That endeavor culminated with the court's shameful decision in Plessy v. Ferguson, 1896, which established that equality of treatment exists when the races are provided substantially equal facilities, even though these facilities be separate. Therefore, with this court's approval, government-enforced segregation and its concomitant destruction of equal opportunity became the constitutional norm and infected every sector of our society, from bathrooms to military units and, crucially, schools. In a powerful dissent, Justice Harlan explained in Plessy that the Louisiana law at issue, which authorized segregation in railway carriages, perpetuated a caste system. Although the state argued that the law prescribed a rule applicable alike to white and colored citizens, all knew that the law's purpose was not to exclude white persons from railroad cars occupied by blacks, but to exclude colored people from coaches occupied by or assigned to white persons. That is, the law proceeded on the ground that colored citizens are so inferior and degraded that they cannot be allowed to sit in public coaches occupied by white citizens. Although the white race deems itself to be the dominant race in prestige, in achievements, in education, in wealth, and in power, Justice Harlan explained, there is no superior dominant ruling class of citizens in the eyes of the law. In that context, Justice Harlan thus announced his view that our Constitution is colorblind. It was not until half a century later in Brown that the court honored the guarantee of equality in the Equal Protection Clause, and Justice Harlan's vision of a Constitution that neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. Considering the effects of segregation and the role of education in the light of its full development and its present place in American life throughout the nation, Brown overruled Plessy. The Brown Court held that separate educational facilities are inherently unequal and that such racial segregation deprives black students of the equal protection of the laws guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. The court thus ordered segregated schools to transition to a racially integrated system of public education with all deliberate speed, ordering the immediate admission of black children to schools previously attended only by white children. Brown was a race-conscious decision that emphasized the importance of education in our society. Central to the court's holding was the recognition that, as Justice Harlan emphasized in Plessy, 
segregation perpetuates a caste system wherein black children receive inferior educational opportunities solely because of their race, denoting inferiority as their status in the community. Moreover, because education is the very foundation of good citizenship, segregation in public education harms our democratic society more broadly as well. In light of the harmful effects of entrenched racial subordination on racial minorities and American democracy, Brown recognized the constitutional necessity of a racially integrated system of schools where education is available to all on equal terms. The desegregation cases that followed Brown confirmed that the ultimate goal of that seminal decision was to achieve a system of integrated schools that ensured racial equality of opportunity, not to impose a formalistic rule of race blindness. In Green v. School Board of New Kent County, 1968, for example, the court held that the New Kent County School Board's Freedom of Choice Plan which allegedly allowed every student, regardless of race, freely to choose the school he would attend, was insufficient to effectuate the command of Brown. That command, the court explained, was that schools dismantle well-entrenched dual systems and transition to a unitary non-racial system of public education. That the board opened the doors of the former white school to black children and the black school to white children on a race-blind basis was not enough. Passively eliminating race classifications did not suffice when de facto segregation persisted. Instead, the board was clearly charged with affirmative duty to take whatever steps might be necessary to convert a unitary system in which racial discrimination would be eliminated root and branch. Affirmative steps, this court held, are constitutionally necessary when mere formal neutrality cannot achieve Brown's promise of racial equality. In so holding, this court's post-Brown decisions rejected arguments advanced by opponents of integration, suggesting that restoring race as a criterion in the operation of the public schools was at odds with the Brown decisions. Those opponents argued that Brown only required the admission of black students to public schools on a racially non-discriminatory basis. Relying on Justice Harlan's dissent in Plessy, they argued that the use of race is improper because the Constitution is colorblind. They also incorrectly claimed that their views aligned with those of the Brown litigators, arguing that the Brown plaintiffs understood that Brown's mandate was colorblindness. This court rejected that characterization of the thrust of Brown. It made clear that indifference to race is not an end in itself under that watershed decision. The ultimate goal is racial equality of opportunity. Those rejected arguments mirror the court's opinion today. The court claims that Brown requires that students be admitted on a racially non-discriminatory basis. It distorts the dissent in Plessy to advance a colorblindness theory. The court also invokes the Brown litigators, 
relying on what the Brown plaintiffs had argued. If there was a member of this court who understood the Brown litigation, it was Justice Thurgood Marshall, who led the litigation campaign to dismantle segregation as a civil rights lawyer and rejected the hollow, race-ignorant conception of equal protection endorsed by the court's ruling today. Justice Marshall joined the Bakke plurality and applauded the judgment of the court that a university may consider race in its admissions process. In fact, Justice Marshall's view was that Bakke's holding should have been even more protective of race-conscious college admissions programs in light of the remedial purpose of the 14th Amendment and the legacy of racial inequality in our society. The court's recharacterization of Brown is nothing but revisionist history and an affront to the legendary life of Justice Marshall, a great jurist who was a champion of true equal opportunity, not rhetorical flourishes about colorblindness. This opinion has been divided into multiple segments, and we've just come to the end of the first. But don't worry, next episode will pick up exactly where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.